Welcome to The Last Call. It's a conversation between two boozy hacks. My name's John Sweeney, and I'm in London, and in New York, Mike Weiss. And today we're joined by this noise. I can't... Hold on, hold on. Which noise? Which noise? You mean this noise? The noise of that's, the that's, that's actually a better encapsulation of this <laughs> podcast, is the noise that he just made, asking which noise it is. It was, meant, it was meant to be a cork popping, but instead it's Peter Pomerantsev popping. It's popped very loudly. So, um, so Peter Pomerantsev, folks, is he's the author of um, of the great surrealist novel "Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible." And yes, I know the thing is, it's not a novel; it's actually a work of nonfiction. But it describes the surreality the weird world of non-fact um, that's been created in Vladimir Putin's Russia. And he seems to have been successfully exporting um, that Putin, that is, to uh, the rest of the world, and, and in particular, uh, the United Kingdom and the United States. But before we um, get stuck in with Peter properly, let's first of all, um, how's our competition going? Uh, our few listeners, four or five listeners will realise will know that I have bet £500 on Joe Biden to defeat Donald Trump. Am I going to win, Mike? Um, I still don't know. It's still, still too soon to tell. Although this week I would say you've got a better chance, if only because... Well, actually, hang on. Let me asterisk that. So I was going to say you, you had a better chance because the one story the far left and the conservative right were looking to take him down on, which was the Tara Reid sexual assault allegation seems to be crumbling into oblivion because um, of investigative reporting, which shows that this woman is deeply untrustworthy and unreliable. She invented a credential, a college degree that she hadn't gotten. Even worse than that, she invented the fact that she had worked on the faculty of Antioch College and was then used in criminal court proceedings and as an expert witness. Anyway, her lawyer has now dumped her, uh, and this whole thing looks like a, a damp squib. So that's that's a plus side for for Team Biden. On the minus side, he did an interview yesterday uh, in which he said, "I believe if you don't vote for me, or if you vote for Trump over me, then quote you ain't black." And this was an interview with a very popular black uh, podcaster, or I, I don't even know if he's on radio or whatever. Anyway, uh, so this went viral, and it made Sleepy Joe look a little less sleepy, but not in a good way. Um, I think he's probably going to recover from this because, you know, it was more of a Bullworth moment than it was, you know, here's my deep, dark racialist attitude coming to the surface. But again, you know, this is, as I've said to you since we started this, this is what worries me. The more, the more and more he crawls out of the, the bunker basement in Delaware, the more he's going to subject himself and ourselves to, uh, to these sorts of gaffes and the more Donald Trump will be able to sink his teeth in. But that said, the economy is still in tatters. Unemployment is at record rates and the pandemic is still with us. So, you know, you've got, you've got a fair chance. Oh, and I might add, there are two things that happened. Several things actually happened this week, but two that I, I, I only caught because I didn't manage to catch them the first time around. I caught them in one of those news summaries was Donald Trump retweeting a Holocaust denier. <laughs> and then Donald Trump giving a speech in Michigan where, according to Andrew Sullivan, and I didn't see the, the original transcript, but Sullivan says, quote, when referring to the anti-Semite and Nazi supporter Henry Ford, he ad-libbed, 
Good bloodlines, if you can believe that stuff. Good blood. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, like I say, it's 50-50. You, you stand a fair chance of, of recouping your 500 quid. Let's put it that way. Uh, I, uh, I looked at the um, odds the other day, and all of the British uh, betting companies, of all uh, the odds favoured Trump still, um, but when I put my bet down, and I think it was very early March, 3rd of March, um, the odds I got were 6 to 4. So I put down 500 quid, and I stand to win, um, well, to get back, well, um, 1,250. Mm. Um, and the odds of um, um, Biden's odds have favoured, and they're now um, um, six to five. But but most of them um, are still giving uh, Trump the edge, but the odds are narrowing. It's exciting. Now there's lots to talk about in Britain, but we've got a, um, a Peter's based in Britain. So first of all, Peter, what are you drinking? Well, look, it's summer, you know. Um, um... It's summertime, but I'm just having I'm having a prosecco. You know, it's a nice summer's day. Went for a big cycle today, and uh, I think it's kind of prosecco weather. I know Michael uh, disapproves of such things. Last time I saw Michael, we were in Los Angeles in a bar, and I was ordering proseccos, and he was like, "That's not a real drink," and he kind of forced me to drink gin, um, which I'm not. That's, I'm not that, that's not true, though. You had come from a place where you'd been drinking nothing but prosecco, then you switched to red wine, and then I might have forced you to drink gin. So get the chronology right. Red wine is okay, although it's a bit. Nah. Allergic to red wine. It would have been white wine. Then. Could be. Could be. I come from this very what? I come from my um a very kind of pompy hotel in Santa Monica, I think, where which would have been very very prosecco-y. Yeah. Down to Badlands, where where Michael lives. Yeah, Highland Park, very Badland. Yeah. <laughs> I'm um I'm knocking back a bold and fruity Waitrose Red. Um, but I've also previously, uh, for my shame, because I thought we were doing this an hour earlier, uh, sank a, um, an orangey ginny thing, uh, which is very nice. But um, I've got this bottle of red, which was in the fridge, and I need to um, drink it before it gets too sour. And it's really lovely. Uh, Mike, what are you drinking? Yep, same old. Bombay Sapphire and soda. Very unoriginal, very unsexy, okay. but... You know, it's the one thing I, that's reliable because, you know, to get alcohol or to get it without a car, because my car went tits up, as you know, uh, you have to have it delivered. And so Bombay Sapphire is sort of the universal donor of gins, at least in New York. So that's why I keep I can't get all the, the swish um, fancy varietals I was able to get in fucking Michigan of all places. So go figure. <laughs> Michael, it's basically gin with soda, but then you like you smash a lime and put it in as well. You just squeeze the lime, yeah. and throw the whole yeah. lime. Yeah, no, it's quite nice. Yeah, nice summer drink. Like it's that. very refreshing. Uh, Hangover is not so bad, and also you, you're getting with each glass, you're getting more water than you are booze, so you can have more of it and it you know pace yourself throughout the course of the day with it. So it's not like tequila used to knock me on my ass after about three or four of them. So that's why I switched back to gin. No, 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 gin's much safer that way. It's much safer as well. As long as, as long as you stick to, yeah, just soda and stuff, I think you're good. Yeah. Uh, uh, Peter, can you move your mouth closer to the microphone on the computer? Right. Um, I, is that good? If that's possible. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is the problem. It's a very bad microphone on my computer. No, 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 but that's not... If you speak up and get closer to it, it's... Okay. Um, it's much closer. Is that going to be okay? Yes. Um, it's it's a, a bit better... Um, Everybody's got to bear with us. We're in the time of the virus. 
So, Peter, I mean, you were born in the Soviet Union, it says on, on Wikipedia. Aren't you ashamed that you're not drinking vodka? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, um, well, I mean, it's interesting. So I'm actually from kind of Ukraine. Um, and my father's from Chernobyl, so it's in the west of Ukraine and from Odessa. And those are actually bits of Russia, even though, you know, I, I, I know I know Western people think of Russia as, as sort of just a place in the north. Russia or the Soviet Union also has a very lush south. So Georgia, Armenia, um, uh, and, and lots of Ukraine are actually part of the greater Mediterranean culturally and historically in many ways. They're part of the Black Sea culture, which is the Bay of the Mediterranean. And even someone like Moldova, the, the, the culture is Mediterranean. It's a wine culture. Sure, vodka is part of the mix, but, but it's, not, it's not a kind of a potato, necessarily purely a potato and grain culture. When you go to Ukraine, there's vineyards, people make their own wine. So um, uh, the Soviet Union was, was in that sense a, a vast empire. And if we think about it in terms of drinking, um, there are also places in the Soviet Union where people don't even drink a lot at all. Um, uh, and and others were like in the south, which which are much more wine wine orientated. So so um, there you go. I mean, it's 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 a more interesting place drinking wise than just than just vodka. And anyway, to be honest, yeah. to be honest, I'm going to say a heresy now. The Poles make much better vodka than the Russians. Now that's, that's a true. true vodka drinking culture, Poland. That's mm. true vodka drinking. But no, Russia has much wine. Sorry, you mentioned Odessa, but I didn't catch. Which family member is from Odessa? Well, so a lot of my so my father's father was from Odessa, like the Pomerantsev clan, um, that has largely now sort of migrated to Israel and America. It's, it's an Odessan clan. Um, you know, there's, there's Pomerantsevs all over the place, Pomerantsevs and, and stuff like that. They're, they're largely from Odessa. I was there uh, last May. Uh, essentially, um, I tried to do a panorama about Tommy Robinson, the far right guy. And um, I interviewed, or rather, I was trying to persuade uh, one of his former acolytes who'd fallen out with him, and she was a woman. And um, after she'd fallen out with Tommy Robinson, he put his online hate machine onto her, and she got threatened with an acid facial. Um, and it was all grim and, uh, and very credible, and, and I believe in true. Um, uh, and my job was to wine and dine uh, this woman who was had far-right kind of neo-Nazi views, had um, apparently swastika jewellery, I discovered later. But anyway, that's my job. And I um, I wine and dine her, and she secretly films me. And the BBC uh, bosses, who I like to call the jellyfish, hated uh, the reality of how somebody like me has to work every now and then. So it was all uh, messy, and eventually I ended up leaving the BBC. But I was... I was writing a novel which uh, no one's read in particular, uh, Michael Weiss hasn't read, it's called The Useful Idiots, and it's about fake news in 1933, and it finishes in Odessa, and I thought, right, having uh, knowing my BBC career is at an end, I spent 10 days in, in Odessa um, researching and, and writing, and I thought it was absolutely beautiful, and if anyone's listening and uh, uh, they've got a wanderlust for places you can't go to, Odessa is fantastic. It really does have a kind of blend of kind of Marseille and Tel Aviv and kind of, you know, really good food, very, very summery and lovely wines. And yes, you're quite right. I feel um, a cultural pig now for talking about <laughs> Russia. 
because actually it's much more interesting. But anyway, uh, on the, come on, let's uh, let's have some red meat. Who is in trouble in hospital with the virus in Moscow, and what does this mean for the um, for Vladimir Putin's future? I'm talking, of course, about uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, the the strong man of Chechnya, and apparently he's in trouble. What happens if he dies? Is that a question to me? Yes. Oh, what happens if Kadyrov dies? Interesting. Um, look, by the way, everybody should know that, that Kadyrov is likely is a likely candidate for the um, for the direct killings of people um, of a lot of Russian um, critics of him, including Anna Politivskaya and Boris Nemtsov. So um, people are wary about being critical of Kadyrov, but he's in trouble right now. That's what the newspapers are saying. Does it change much or will uh, Putin come up with another stooge? Well, I mean, first of the stooge thing, uh, it's a very interesting relationship. I mean, Kadyrov has incredible freedom in his little fiefdom in Chechnya to rule it at will. It's more kind of a patronage system where, you know, uh, as long as he's loyal to Putin, he can do whatever he likes. Um, uh, so, so it's um, it's, it's it's an odd relationship, and also, you know, Putin's own kind of credibility historically. I know it's twenty years ago, but it actually rests on him bringing stability and a sort of peace through iron fist um, arrangement in in Chechnya. Um, so, so it's a very it's a very kind of you know, there's been very deep in this relationship. Um, uh, you know, Kadyrov's father, of course, kind of fought against Russia for a long time as well. So, so it's, a very, it's a very, very kind of like, you know, if we look at sort of like you know, the formula of Putinism, that relationship with Chechnya, with Kadyrov personally, is really deep in the DNA. Um, and there was always this sense that if like, you know, a sign that Putinism as a, as a system might be fraying would be if Chechnya starts falling apart again. And um, look, I'm not the biggest Caucasus expert, I, I should say that straight away. Um, but, but I suppose with Kadyrov, as with Putin, you have a similar, uh, again, a, a similar situation in the sense of it's one man rule, stability centered around one person, actually lots of different interests sort of like bubbling beneath that. And there's no kind of system for succession. You know, there's no there's no system, really. It's, it really is just all about one guy. So so maybe if, if he falls ill and something happens to him, maybe there'll be some sort of. Uh, some sort of tension, um, uh, just as when people think, you know, how will Putin be succeeded because there's no system in place. Um, but you know, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit cautious about how you know the virus generally will uh, affect um, dictatorships. I think generally democracies are much more vulnerable to you know these sort of situations, and and my sense is, you know, the dictatorships will be just fine. You. Um... I mean, one of the, the arguments that you've been making for years, though, I mean, going back to your, your Russia book and then now your second book on propaganda is that really, it, you know, some of these systems might be one man rule based, but it's not really about the one individual. Right. I mean, there's a whole intellectual climate at play um, and you have a bunch of different sort of architects of these, I don't know, postmodern concepts of, of the playfulness between truth and falsehood, or I should say fact and falsehood, truth and lies and I was telling um, John before we went on, and this is something we've talked about in previous episodes, you know, in the 20th century, under totalitarianism, 
it, it was sort of, you knew where you stood in that these regimes were not only trafficking disinformation and falsehoods about themselves and their enemies, but also uh, trying badly to hide the truth, right? I mean, you would, you would throw a dissident writer into the gulag or shoot him in the back of the head. Uh, if it was somebody who was too big to fail, like a Solzhenitsyn, you would exile him and, but try to keep, you know, the, the Samizdat literature under wraps. Now, it's not really that way, is it? It's, no, let them have their say. Let them, you know, have their rallies. Um, and we, we, we sort of, you know, I don't know if you want to call it death by a thousand cuts or it's, it's you know, it, they've turned even opposition, they've turned even, even enmity to the regime into a kind of playground where certain things are allowable that wouldn't be otherwise. Uh, and, and that also strengthens the hold of the regime. Can you get into that a little bit? Because... At the time, I remember reading your your first book and thinking, I mean, it was fascinating, but worried that, you know, as I, I think I told you, a little too much Derrida, not enough Orwell. But now I've come around to your point of view entirely, which is we are in a kind of state of post-modernity when it comes to these things. And you see this not only in Russia, um, you see this in America, you see this in Hungary, you see this in the Philippines, you see this everywhere now. So it's not really about Putin or, or Putinism, right? It's, it's something else. There's, there's something in the zeitgeist. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, this is what my second book is all about. Because uh, at the end of my first book, I came back to to the thing we once knew as the West, and my life on a split between London and New York and DC. And um, I was like, well, you know, Russia, as you say, is this kind of like um, weird postmodern dictatorship. But but I was like, essentially, you know, you know, probably what I saw there was just just a Russian kind of psychosis based on its own own very very distorted and and sad and tragic history. Uh, but then suddenly I saw the same kind of manifestations play out um, in, in, in Britain and America. But let's be specific what I mean. Um, politicians who don't care if they're caught lying, I think you made that point very well, they don't care about the truth as such. Um, you know, Boris Johnson was sacked over several, I think twice as a journalist for, for, for lying. And yet that hasn't stopped him becoming prime minister. If anything, that's part of his appeal. The fact that he's cavalier and almost like a, you know, a sort of fat punk rocker when it comes to the truth. And, and I think it's part of Trump's appeal as well, the way he kind of sticks a finger up to glum reality. And then, but there's more than that, because there's, there's several things. But there's, um, none of these people have kind of an idea of the future, but they're all nostalgic. If you look at what Trump, Putin, um, uh, Johnson, Bolsonaro, Orban, Duterte, what they all have in common is they're all nostalgic. So that's very interesting, the, the lack of an idea of a future um uh, and also the way they kind of you know they're not really left or right i don't think successful populism can be left populism or right populism it has to be both but but they're constantly kind of molding and remolding the idea of, of the people which is constantly transforming um and the idea of the enemies of the people who are constantly being sourced whether it's in uh, the front pages of the daily mail or in trump's rhetoric and obviously putin does this has been doing this consistently since his arrival on the scene um, so, so, so it was, it was interesting to me, why is this happening everywhere, uh, at, at the same time? And look, in, in the book that, you know, I wrote a whole book about why it's happening, uh, and there's technological factors, but, but also kind of, you know, maybe, maybe the most kind of, you know, the deeper one is to do with, um, a kind of an end of, let's put it very simply, the end of any credible, rational futures that anybody can aspire to. As long as we had, politics based around 
an idealized future, whether that was communist or social democratic or the European future or the American future or the liberal democratic one. You know, there was something to strive for and politicians were trying to make an argument, I'm getting there, I'm creating our ideal communist utopia, I'm creating our ideal Europe or our ideal globalized world a la The Economist magazine. And when every one of those kind of futures died, it was communism obviously died a long time ago in, in, in Russia, certainly. And then, you know, the dreams of globalizable democracy die with 2008. And the idea that democracy is an inevitable future for me die in, 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 you know, in the deserts of, of Iraq and Syria. As, as those futures all, all disappear, um, politicians don't really need facts anymore because none of them can prove that our future is better. Everyone feels that their kids going to have a worse life than them. And so you get these other versions of politics, ones based on nostalgia and, and celebrating the rejection of facts, which is a pleasant experience because facts are unpleasant. They tell us that then they were going to die. Um, and so um, I think this happened in Russia first because already in the 1990s, certainly sort of by 93, 94, 95, you know, all versions of a credible future disappear in Russia. First communism collapses, democratic reforms collapse, and Political strategists and, 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 and propagandists and politicians suddenly have to find a new way of, of kind of appealing and cementing their power. Um, and so this process started a bit earlier in Russia and, and, and we're all, all catching up. I mean, Russia is kind of weirdly one of the places where the future arrives first or, or I suppose a, where the futureless present arrives first. Was that the right? Is that, is that too long an answer? Sorry. No, that's that's interesting. It, 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 is it also because in Russia, I mean, as you say, there, there was not a proper transition from communism to true liberal democracy. So it was sort of halted and then reversed. And therefore, it was easier to become to, for the country and the, the system to become this cauldron of this sort of postmodernist populist politics. And I mean, would you would you actually argue that that the, the, the world that Putin and his kind of, you know, inner circle created. I mean, you, talk, you, you, you cite a lot, um, uh, what's his name? Um, it's escaping me. I, I mentioned him on Twitter. It was in your essay in the American interest. Um, uh, Gleb. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the shaman, I suppose, of, of managed democracy or, or, or political technology. Would you argue that people like him and Surkov actually were in some weird way, like Machiavelli's who've exported this elsewhere, or did they just, you know, arrive on the scene sooner than everybody else? Like, is Russia really a kind of, you know, ideas factory for the West now, or is it just incidental that it got there and, 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 and sort of, you know, embodied this new um, kind of regime before the rest of us did? No, no, I think this is somewhat, this, this, this is way, be, this is happening everywhere. This is the tight guys. I mean, I often compare, I mean, propaganda is, for me, actually much closer to art than political science. Mm. It's kind of the cruddiest, nastiest, shittiest, most immoral bit of art. Um, and just as way, just how you have kind of modernism, you know, <laughs> arrives everywhere in the early 20th century. So so this kind of, okay, let's call it um, pop-up populism, postmodern populism, whatever, is, is something that, that everybody's doing because they're negotiating, um, you know, the, a common zeitgeist, without a doubt. Um, having said that, I mean, propagandists like artists are always looking at each other. They're always learning from each other, you know, just as the way that, you know, a modernist in, in, in Paris would be looking at one in Moscow or the other way around. So they do influence. Uh, I'd say the Moscow school of this art form is, is uh, you know, one that is exhibited across the world. and in, I'm sure it influences people. 
But then you also have Russia as one of the one of the first countries, probably the first country, that, that turned this into a foreign policy weapon. So you know, um, you know, <laughs> Russia today. We can go on about its kind of whether whether how many what reach it has, how many viewers it has. I mean, that's a, a different conversation. But in terms of an idea, it was the first time we saw you know what was meant to be a serious foreign state media like Deutsche Welle or the BBC or Voice of America, which are usually very staid, suddenly going, you know, just, you know, completely embracing this corrupt version of postmodernism and saying, well, you know, all facts are relative. You know, we can have an expert on who's a don at Cambridge and we can have this conspiracy theorist on and they're just as legitimate each other. Um, mm. But it's already happening in Fox News and in Infowars, but for a state to use this within its foreign policy armaments and then the bots and the trolls. I mean, that's that's something I think that has been a huge inspiration. Now we see China kind of, you know, Russia led the way. Russia was the icebreaker. Now everybody's at it. Now China is doing it. And, you know, the Saudis, Iran, and you know, it's just become normalized. So, so a bit of both, you know, w w without a doubt, you can't invent something which isn't in the zeitgeist. It just doesn't work yeah. that way. But, but then Russia, you know, they were the first to make it into a foreign policy doctrine and that's that is original i think mm. i'm i'm going to uh, get on top uh, get on my donkey here uh, and um and damn derrida and stand up for orwell and all that kind of nonsense and and i'm going to pray and aid the virus because i think that actually um the virus is going to break trump and it's causing Putin trouble too. And Johnson and the guy, I'm bad at pronouncing names, so I'm going to get um, the name of the guy in Brazil wrong. Bolsonaro. Um, yes, thank you. I think that the populists are having a bad virus. Yeah. And the person and the countries that are doing well are proper democracies. People, um, Angela Merkel in Germany, um, the Prime Minister in um, in uh, South Korea, the Taiwanese coming up um, from nowhere. Suddenly, I'm when I see news from Taiwan, I'm interested and I'm supportive. Obviously, we're all worried about what's happening in Hong Kong, but and then the other um, the other countries, New Zealand. These are proper democracies. They're having a good virus, and the populists because they damn science and think it's all rubbish and they don't care, and their base is locked in some weird nostalgic throwback. Those countries, and that includes the United Kingdom and the United States and Russia, are in trouble. So I, I think that you might be wrong, Peter. Oh, so in, in about whether, who does well out of it? Well, yeah, let's... What are we, what are we, no, so a couple of points. I think you have a very... You're making a very, very good point there. I, I, I actually agree with you. But we'll come back to a second to, to the second bit that you're saying. Without a doubt, for these kind of regimes, whether they're dictatorships or democracies, but if their leaders are all about rejecting facts, you can do that when it's cultural politics. So they always try to push stuff into identity politics where facts don't matter because you know you know you know facts aren't part of your identity. Identity is all about emotion. While death is the one certainty the one reality which doesn't give a toss about identity you know so so you know death is always the return of reality and there's like you know corpses bereavement this is real you can't you can't turn this into a culture war even though they're trying in america but i you cannot 
hide my death. But I'm not. You cannot hide my death. Yeah, exactly. You can't. You can't make. No, I, I agree. Death is real and unmovable, and, and I completely agree with you. So in that in that sense, the regimes who are good at dealing with reality do, do best. I completely agree. However, does it really does it really cut across dictatorships versus democracy? So there are some democracies, the ones you you just mentioned, who are doing really well. Other democracies are doing very very badly. Uh, I mean, Britain's in a, in a, in a group that kind of Belgium and France have been doing very well. Italy didn't do very well. Sweden's having a very, very weird experience. So is it really democracy versus dictatorship or is it something else that's differentiating here? I would well, say New Zealand has done remarkably well. To a degree now, it's kind of creepy, the sort of fetishization of the, the prime minister of New Zealand as, you know, the world's only leader. Um Canada seems to be doing okay. Um, yeah, and, you know, a, a lot of this has to do with population, um, urban density, and also, frankly, which countries most people want to go to, right? <laughs> I mean, New York is the epicenter of the United States because this is a, a an international hub for commerce, finance, tourism, and pretty much everything else. Um, but then again, the governor here is doing a much better job than the president of the United States in containing the pandemic. So I don't know, though. I mean, you know, we, we my, my concern with these sort of grand analyses, you know, we everyone read Fukuyama in 1990 and that was the new thing. You know, history is finally pulling into its final destination and they're, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, some some wars fought over tribalistic or nationalist complaints here and there, such as in the Balkans. But these were kind of you know, aftershocks of the 20th century rather than augers of the 21st. Now it seems to be everything's gone to shit. Liberal democracy has plenty of alternatives. These sort of hybrid, hybridized author- authoritarian market economy style regimes are all the rage. But at some point, they too will come to dust, right? At some point, Putin will die. And maybe Russia tends in a worse direction after that happens. Maybe somebody like Sechin takes over or who knows, like a, a Zhirinovsky esque figure comes to the fore. But, you know, are we not being a little too teleological in the other direction now saying, right, you know, all of these dreams are shattered, never to be put back together again. And so, I mean, what are we to do, but just kind of explain the here and now rather than try to prescribe solutions for it? That's a question for Peter, by the way. Look, we're in this kind of like, you know, um, I just don't know to what extent simply thinking, especially when we're talking about information and trust, which is what we're talking about here, you know, mm. um, and epistemic authority. I don't know whether dictatorship and democracy is is the big dividing line, the way it was in the 20th century, where, you know, we kind of perceive the world as a battle between freedom and, 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 and censorship and, and stuff like that. I mean... What's very interesting, I mean, even just from what John was saying, he's already created three groups, real democracies, which were um, kind of quite centrist, quite kind of um, uh, moderate, uh, I think slightly social democratic states, largely if you think about them. Uh, then there were the kind of the populist democracies, that's another definition. Um, and then there's the kind of, I suppose, sort of like the kind of weird authoritarian states, which are often called hybrid regimes, like, like Russia, which is authoritarian, but the borders are open, there's some media mm. and then you have the full-on totalitarian ones. Um, I don't know, I wonder whether we need a whole new vocabulary, a whole new set of categories to really define our kind of sense of different models, but also 
what I think most important is, is our sense of progress. What are we meant to be aspiring to? I mean, always when we talk about democracies, actually what people were talking about was, was Anglo-Saxon democracies, and they really don't seem like models for anyone during this crisis. Um, I look at that propaganda, that's yeah. the subject that, that I study, that I devote myself to. Uh, I find myself looking less in, about, you know, in terms of censorship and not censorship, or freedom and not freedom of the press. Obviously that still exists. You know, you have many countries where journalists are, are murdered for what they do, and I'm not saying that's gone away, but what I, we think about much more is polarization. Are there countries where the polarization has got so bad that uh, groups can't talk to each other anymore? Because that undermines the premise of, of democracy, where we're meant to kind of deliberate with each other in a public sphere. And you can see that both in democracies like America, uh, and you see that in, in, in authoritarian regimes like Russia, where that polarization is constructed on purpose. Um, and then you have countries where you do have still some sort of public space, some sort of trust for um, uh, non-partisan authorities. And, and I think maybe that's what this is about. You know, countries where everything has become so polarized and so partisan, you can't even guide yourself through a crisis. Um, so maybe that's what we should be looking for, these kind of barometers around trust and the quality of public discourse. It, it feels, though, that, that, for example, when we're talking about... So, so some of the time I am troubled by um, Boris Johnson's government in that, yes, you know, obviously Britain is a democracy, but, but essentially the government, or rather um, it's, there was a problem with Jeremy Corbyn, but there was a massive appeal um, to nostalgia and the Brexit votes and then the, um, uh, Boris Johnson's pitch to the electorate um, uh, the, uh, the back end of uh, 2019 that nostalgia will win us through. And actually, this is now we're um, in the teeth of the virus. And it's things like evidence and science, which are the things that will save you. And so, for example, the German economy is way better placed than the British economy um, to recover. And they're going to they're playing football in Germany in a way that they're not in Britain. And, and, and these things matter to people. So, so, and also in terms of hope, you were saying, right, there is no hope left. What's the future? Well, right now, the future is, have I got a job? Have I got um, some sense, you know, it, is the NHS working in Britain? These are things which used to be completely um, good assumptions. Yes, I'm fine, I can earn, earn a living. Yes, I can, um, the health service will work for me. Mm. Now there's, it feels as though there is a, I would say there's been a shift to the left and also a shift in favour of the idea of society. And then when Mrs. Thatcher said there is no such thing as a society, actually nonsense, love. You know, you're talking rubbish. We've been, we, we've been through a kind of World War II experience, obviously far less, um, well, this has been scary. This has been scary, not as in Hitler versus the virus. Hitler was worse, no question. But, 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 we now have, I mean, I hope that our society in Britain and other societies too will be fairer, more respectful of people who work in public service. And I am more angry than I've ever been in my entire life about rich people who hide their money in tax havens in um, sunny places for shady people. So I, I actually think there is a kind of re-engagement 
inside my own mind at least, with the ideals of social democracy, of a, of a fairer and more just society. Isn't that back on the agenda? John, I really, I kind of hope so. Um, you're quite right. Look, truth is not, as I kind of indicated in my, in my little in my little soliloquy earlier, truth is not very pleasant. So when we have politicians who put one big finger up to the truth, that's sometimes nice. That's sometimes appealing. But truth is useful. You know, when you want to find out, you know, when you want to survive physically, uh, you need the truth. When you want to, you know, make sure that you have a health service that functions through it, you need the truth. So truth is often unpleasant, but very, very useful. And suddenly we are in you know, a baseline moment where we're all looking towards kind of, I don't think we're looking towards scientists to tell us the truth in some, you know, in some in like preachers, but we want a fact-based discourse to negotiate our way through this crisis. The question is, the, the question is, does it last? And the question is actually, and the worry is that as the economic consequences kick in, um, you know, the anger and hopelessness and rage of that, because there won't be practical uh, answers were actually involved in those who then, you know, prey on that for fear and hatred. I mean, looking at what's going on online, uh, which is not actually what's dominating the discourse in England. In England, we actually have people looking at the BBC again for, for, for in unprecedented numbers. But looking at what's going on online, the extremists and the demagogues and the fanatics are kind of sharpening their tweets and cracking their rhetorical knuckles. And they're just getting ready for when, you know, when we're out of this kind of moment at the moment where this moment this present moment when we are looking towards a more kind of calm and, and fact-based discourse you know if there's a bad economic fallout that's usually great fodder for those who, who thrive on anger and hatred and identity politics so we could be in for a rough ride no that's true you look back to what happened after the first world war in germany um and Italy, uh, and then you think, oh my God! And you, some of the time, I feel it. I feel it here in London. I feel, I feel, so many people are going to lose their jobs. There's going to be a massive recession, kind of like uh, the Great Depression. And one hopes it's going to actually we could recover quite quickly. But you know, for example, that the that the old ways of doing things, the office isn't really necessary in the 21st century you can have a ton of meetings much more effectively um on on zoom and blah 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 and blah 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 and and also you don't have to fly everywhere um or anything like as much as we used to do and there's a ton of jobs going there so do you think peter that's actually some kind of fascism some new version of it, some mutant version, but essentially that essentially those old songs, those old themes, those old tunes, that that could that could be our future. So I don't want to make predictions. I just want us to look very kind of as 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 accurately as we can onto the landscape as we know it. Look, throughout Europe, by the way, this is not just a British thing. We, we, we have these kind of bubbles of, of extremism, which have percolated into mainstream politics. So the AFD in Germany, you know, uh, I covered 2017 elections in Germany. Uh, we actually did a little digital analysis of propaganda during it. And there's a 
And at the start, all my German friends and editors were saying, there's no way that these screams will get into, into any serious power. You know, the, the, why are you focusing so much on the AFD, which is a far-right party in Germany? And they're now the second, uh, you know, they're the largest opposition party in, in, in the Bundestag. I mean, largely because of the coalition in, in power, but, but still, it's, it's shocking. In Italy, Salvini, who is, you know, a far-right politician, uh, trading in, in the sort of tropes that we really thought had disappeared from the mainstream of European politics. You know, it was getting 15, 20%. Um, look, they've all gone very, very quiet during this moment of crisis. Everybody in Germany, yes, to Merkel. In, in Italy, we have this incredible thing of like 70% of approval or something for the government, which never happens in Italy. In Britain as well, we have like, we had until recently 70% of approval for the lockdown policy. But they're there. They're strong. They will return. They're biding their time. We know on the ground we've had, you know, extremist groups kind of on both sides, the side of sort of political Islam or the far right movements that you covered, John. They have been building their connections. You know, they've been waiting for a great crisis to take advantage of. And if that great crisis comes, if, you know, if there's, you know, these spiraling amounts of people losing their jobs, they will obviously try and take advantage of that. If they win, I don't know. I certainly hope not, but but they're definitely going to try. Yeah, that's um, that shot my optimism out of the sky. <laughs> but is it is it if they try? Will it be on the basis of nostalgia? Because I mean, what are they going to be saying? Let's go back to the way things were, you know, before this global plague hit us. Uh, they're going to have to try and weld some version of the future with, you know, perhaps an evocative version of the past, but a past that doesn't really exist, an imagined past, right? Um, because what they'll be doing is running against this mushy consensus or these centrist governments, Merkel, um, a technocratic government in Italy, et cetera, and saying, you know, they're the ones who screwed up. They're the ones who plunged us into this economic turmoil. Here's how we get out of it. And what are they going to do? Are they going to be looking at, you know, 80 years ago? You know, or are they going to be saying... We need a, a new version, a populist version, you know, lock down the borders, no immigration, no conquering Muslim hordes if you're of the Orban mindset, that kind of thing, um, and just protect our country from not just, you know, waves of human beings trying to infiltrate it and, and, and weaken its national resolve and character, but now these invisible enemies of, you know, bacilli and, and viruses and so on. I mean, what do you think? That's exactly the rhetoric that they're, that, they're, that they're trying to tap into. Yeah, they're saying yeah. it's not refugees coming; the refugees are, are bringing them. Exactly. Right. That's exactly it. They're, they're they're putting together kind of public health and racial and racial politics and hatred. Something that's really worrying me on the internet. Again, this isn't dominating our discourse in Europe. It might be in America, but but I just, we just see these things brewing, and one wonders where it goes. Is the combination of kind of health. Uh, discourse and, and political discourse. So we always had like anti-vaxxers on the web and stuff like that. You always had these movements that were against, um, you know, epistemic authority when it came to, to you know, things like, like, like vaccination. Now, because, you know, scientists are kind of at the heart of the kind of the rational states and its, and its answer to this, we're seeing that kind of, uh, that kind of group of, of propaganda and people who follow it melding with the people who are have long been invested in narratives against against the state. Yeah. 
yeah, again, you know, no, don't trust the government. So you have the people who like don't trust the doctors coming together with the people who don't trust the government and forming one mass. So the health propaganda is becoming more politicized and the political propaganda is becoming more healthified. Now, if the scientists start getting stuff wrong, which they always do because science is full of, you know, mistakes and errors, that's the way science is. So if the scientific modelers get stuff wrong, if a vaccine comes out and it doesn't work, then that'll start eroding people's sense that, you know, the scientists know what the hell they're doing. That'll strengthen and bolster the, the kind of this twin, this twin attack from those who don't trust science generally and those who don't trust political authority. Um, and that get, that'll get stronger and stronger. Um, and really, if we're talking about kind of like, you know, the last, the last Maginot line <laughs> defending you know, enlightenment, fact-driven discourse. And then science, and especially the medical profession, is that, you know, people might not trust anyone in their society, but they tend to always trust doctors and nurses. You know, that's like the last people that, you know, no one is post-truthy around. But if they start becoming politicized, if they start becoming part of a partisan debate, if their truth starts becoming relativized, then, then, then we're in a dangerous place. And look, we've seen that with the climate change debate over decades. Yeah. We need something that was an objective debate. Look at the 1990s, Republicans, Democrats saying, it's science. You know, what's the market-based solution to, you know, uh, global warming? And, and here's the more social democratic solution. But nobody disagreed on the science. And that has since changed. And now you have, as a marker of identity for many Republicans, that you do not accept, you know, the science of climate change, which there is, you know, 97% consensus on among scientists so right. it's happened before um the other the the positive thing would be of course the scientists as heroes and if they do find a vaccine which i very much hope they will then then it'll be the opposite direction then i think science will have this incredible moment and there will be you know you know the will lean towards uh you know the last examples of the enlightenment tradition in our culture but then again, and, and not to be too much of a pessimist here, but you, you still have the anti-vax movement, which is now seizing upon coronavirus to say we shouldn't be looking for a vaccine because that'll only make our kids autistic or whatever the fuck they think. And that fused with this sort of QAnon, Reddit-born, alt-right, pandemic propaganda, which, by the way, um, has platformed a licensed medical professional who's also a crank, by the way, but it doesn't matter because she has an MD. Um, you know, as you were saying earlier, her her truth is no different or must be just as legitimate as the truth of Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birks. So what worries me is that, okay, even if there is a vaccine, by the time it comes out, we will have um, gotten over the worst of the COVID-19 crisis most people will have either got the thing and got antibodies to it or, you know, it will have killed as many people as it can kill for now. Uh, and the vaccine will almost be seen as either obsolete or, you know, arriving too late. And still the conspiracy theorists will flood the zone and say, this is all just a, a, a massive con by big science and the deep state and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There isn't, I, I mean, and maybe this is just a function of spending too much time on the fucking internet. But I have, there is not a single bit of, of sort of conventional wisdom or, or, you know, almost universally agreed upon fact that can't be torn apart and that can't go viral from the other direction because people are just so fucking mad and, 
you know, so I, I don't know. I mean, are, are we going to be lauding and celebrating scientists if they, if they kick this thing? I, I don't know. I'm sure plenty of us will, but you're still going to have nutters out in force, whether they're packing heat, raiding, you know, Michigan state legislatures or attempting, I don't know, terrorist attacks who say, no, this whole big, this whole thing has been one big conspiracy. Those people are always going to exist. But however, I'm going to get on my optimistic donkey one more time. So, for example, on climate change, an observable thing in London right now is the, the, is the, the move towards bicycles as the proper way to, to move around the city. It's helped because the weather's lovely at the moment. But nevertheless, I'm seeing, and I do, um, like uh, last night I went to see an old pal uh, we met in uh, Regent's Park, and I cycled there. Um, by the way, while I was sat on a bench guzzling uh, rosé, uh, socially distanced, obviously, um, uh, Bill Browder walked past. Hi, John. And we, we talked about um, stuff in Russia, and then he, then he wandered past. Sorry, I'm uh, losing my point. My point is that there has been an effective, big popular change that actually bicycles, keeping the air clean, is a good thing. And loads and loads and loads of people have got that. And the government is going that way as well. A second positive, the price of oil has collapsed so much that the revenue for states like Saudi Arabia and Russia is now in serious trouble. And that's going to have an effect, the extent to which Russia can can continue to muck about in the international arena because it's going to be broke. And Saudi Arabia's poxy tyranny is also in financial trouble as well so so there's there's i think that yes there are nutters out there who deny climate change but nevertheless it feels like coming through the other side of the virus people are getting that actually it's much nicer to move around cities by bicycle again these are things which places like denmark and germany have pioneered and holland too but with uh, Britain and London is catching up and it's fashionable. You can feel it. Um, so one, one last question to both of you. Do you, I've thought that since like 2016, you had the terrors and horrors in Syria and then Syrian refugees coming to Europe for, for safety and them effectively um, being used almost as stormtroopers by the Kremlin uh, and the far right in countries like Britain to fear, look at this wave of um, Muslim refugees. So the, so that's a, a, they're winning. The far right um, and, the, and the Kremlin and the, the way they, those two associate in some weird way and also uh, political Islam, radical Islam, whatever you want to call it, the, the, they're allied and they, they kept on winning and then they, they, they won the Brexit vote. In a different shape, they won the um, Trump won his election. The same kind of forces at play. Then, 2019 against Corbyn, Boris Johnson wins. This moment, which has just happened, or rather, it, it came out yesterday in Britain, that Dominic Cummings um, he, he 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 drove 270 miles. He, um, to my my judgment, breaking the lockdown or breaking the rules. He set, he set up. That seems to be like a clear and obvious breach of the lockdown rules and also big trouble for the populist right that seem to have been winning things again and again and again. So this feels like a pivot in, 
in British history in terms of the social democrats, the battle between the social democrats and the right. It's suddenly that the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson's advisor, has done something which is clearly wrong. Am I being silly? Am I being too optimistic? No, no, no. Look, look, look. Without a doubt, this is the first time since 2016, if we take that as the, the revolutionary year of 2016, where we see the, um, yeah, this, this kind of like um, nasty populists in disarray, as you say, on a very deep level, because they're kind of, you know, post-truthy identity politics doesn't work when you have a virus. It just doesn't, it's not, it's not an enemy that you can spin. It doesn't care if you're Brexit or Remain. It's kind of a, you know, the, the reality of it is completely undeniable, um, firstly. And, and, uh, and, and yeah, we see them on the, we see them on the retreat. We see Bolsonaro looking very weak in, in, in Brazil as well. Um, I haven't been following what Duterte has done. Uh, Orban is obviously using this quite effectively to cement his power. Um, in Britain, look, and in, in, in Britain, this is, you know, uh, we have a new government and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's options are, are kind of many. Um, so, so whether this will kind of guide it in a, in a certain more kind of moderate direction, it, it could be, it could be. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was a very good essay in the New York Times by Mark Lilla, um, who's a professor of humanities at Columbia. He's written several excellent books on intellectual history, um, particularly European history. And he says, look, um, pundits exist to predict the future, but none of them really knows what the hell the future is going to look like. And he gives this anecdote about you know being called upon by foreign news to explain, well, how is coronavirus going to affect the 2020 election? And he just says, I don't know. And then they say, well, that's not, that's not the answer we're looking for. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but it's the truth. And this is, the, this is my point about, you know, are, have we gone too much in the other direction teleologically, or, or I suppose anti-teleologically? We said in the 90s, right, so Soviet Union had collapsed. There's one superpower left. It is a shining beacon on the hill and a light unto nations for all that rest. And there's no alternative to liberal democracy. Well, no, there are several alternatives, as we've seen. Some of them have done pretty well at containing or controlling this pandemic, even if they're just lying about the statistics. That's a form of con containing it, isn't it? Um, and then there are those who are suffering, like the president of Brazil, um, the president of Russia. But again, I, you know... This is the thing, you know, I, I think electorates have very short term memories and the economy, as I said, in the U.S. is in a dire state. Unemployment is through the roof. Um, but if the economy does recover quickly as things begin to and, and already, I mean, you know, in New York, I'm seeing signs of uh, a loosening of restrictions. Restaurants and, and shops that had been closed last week are now open but maintaining strict social distancing guidelines, et cetera, et cetera. As, as commerce and industry comes back to life, are people going to really be obsessed about the buffoon who told us to drink bleach and shove UV rays up our asshole to cure this thing? Or do they just want to get on with their life? Um, I don't think they will, will care about the, the, the recent past. I think they're only going to care about the present. And my concern, as I say, which is why you know I'm, I'm still 50-50 on Trump's chances here, my, my concern is people do seem to think that this guy is better placed to get the economy on track. Uh, and Joe Biden is a very, very weak candidate. He is the embodiment. I mean, and this is the thing, you know, for, for the first time, at least in my adult 
sort of conscious memory of politics, being um, a, a left of center kind of establishment figure is anathema to so many on the left, right? They want their, they want their revolution. They want their democratic socialism. And if they can't get it, they're going to throw their, their, their toys out the pram. So the, the, the real test for kind of this post-war liberal consensus is coming not just from the right, which is, you know, in the ascendant across the world in many respects, but it's also coming from the left who want their turn at a, at a kind of Trump style presidency. Only one that, that just tears everything up and starts all over again from a socialist point of view. So I, I don't, this is why I can't be optimistic. You know, I, I don't really think anybody can say with any certainty that, okay, fine. You know, we, we've lived past the age of uh, authoritarian populism and now we're kind of settling into this sort of mushier, and I, I suppose nostalgic period for liberal democracy of like the 1991 era. I don't know that that's going to happen. And, and if it happens here and there, it's not necessarily going to happen everywhere, right? Um, I mean, the pattern recognition we were talking about earlier from Putin to Orban to Bolsonaro to Trump to Salvini, um, is that is that just an accident of history or is there something that was driving it? And is that going to drive it now in the other direction or are we just going to see sort of pockets where it exists and pockets where it doesn't. I, I don't know. I, I agree with Mark Lilla. We don't know shit, you know, and that's the problem. And that's what makes it, makes it so scary. Yeah, look, I mean, I wrote in a, in a, in a previous piece that actually the, the desire for these kind of um, like before and after pieces, which, which um, certain, certain, um, certain authors seem to specialize in, um, that kind of, the appeal of them is, is partly to do with Kind of because we don't know, we see, we're in this kind of weird, timeless, warped phase where you know everything's kind of uncertain, and the days stick to each other like like overcooked spaghetti. Um, because of that, we almost want to say there was a before and after to give us a sense of order of kind of like you know of almost mythical times, the pre-COVID era, the post-COVID era. And and I'm with Mark. I'm like I've I've actually really you know I've, I've tried to wiggle my way away even in this conversation. Um, uh, just, let's just look at what's going on. There's lots of interesting stuff going on. We don't have to predict the future. We can see what's going on and think about how we deal with it. Uh, so there's plenty of stuff to do and think about without making kind of grand statements. Uh, but I think John is quite right. I think this is a new challenge for these kind of post-truth and populists because, you know, this is such a kind of hard, factual kind of issue that you can't, you know, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't use a lot of the tricks that they've been very good at using. Mm. I um, I must confess I made a terrible mistake at the start of this podcast in that I left the bottle uh, downstairs and therefore <laughs> my glass is empty. <laughs> so I stick stick with my optimism, uh, but we're done. Um, and, uh, and, I need, and I need a drink. Um, and about that, I'm optimistic. You've been listening to The Last Call with our special guest, um, Peter Pomerantsev, and if you haven't read it, read his his first book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. What's the title of your second book? It's Propaganda is... Not, this is not Propaganda, second book, yeah? The second one is uh, This is Not Propaganda, yeah. Yeah. Um, you've been listening to The Last Call, Two Boozy Hacks. Now wash your hands. <laughs>